Apple TV Plus, Apple News Plus, Apple Arcade, Apple Card. Well, we still don't have all the details like pricing and mechanics, but Apple CEO Tim Cook hosted Hollywood Royalty at the company's Cupertino headquarters this week. The promise, a new model for digital commerce and digital content that emphasizes privacy over targeting and subscriptions over ads. But is Apple too late? And for publishers and producers who have been burned by the big platforms before, is this time different? This is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort from CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. Joining me to dig for answers, my former editor and now the editor of Fast Company, Stephanie Mehta, and Kevin Delaney, editor-in-chief and co-CEO at Quartz. Joining me a little later, Rebecca Saltzman, CEO of Finji, the game studio behind Overland for insight into arcade. Um, to start off, though, Kevin, I, I want to dig into News Plus because... That's out already. I downloaded it last night after the upgrade to uh, iOS 12.2. I can't figure out the model, yeah. though, because 10 bucks a month split half between Apple, half the publisher, sort of based on how much you read. If a publisher is able to get five bucks a month just from their own app, does this make sense? And the whole argument that it's a different audience, I mean, everybody's got an iPhone or everybody with money, it seems. <laughs> yeah, so Apple News has about 85 million people a month who are using it. So it's not a tiny audience, but it's not really 1.2 billion people with phones in it at this stage. And so a lot of people are, are looking at the economics of this. As you write, the publishers are splitting $5 of the monthly fee, and they're actually splitting it based on usage, as far as we can tell. So if someone reads a lot of the Wall Street Journal's articles, they'll get a, a bigger chunk of it. It feels a lot like Spotify, mm -hmm. and, what, and what we saw at the beginning of Spotify is that a lot of the artists, particularly the smaller ones, were complaining that they were getting paid fractions of pennies. They're getting paid basically nothing when their songs were being played, and the economics of it didn't work for them. I would expect that the economics of News Plus, in the beginning at least, are going to be pretty similar and similarly dissatisfying to publishers. Stephanie, here's what I don't like about the Spotify model, if that is in fact what Apple is using, is that the bulk of the money goes to the most popular sort of publications or content creators overall, which means Adele and Taylor Swift and Drake overall on Spotify are making a bunch of money. Whereas I, if I'm subscribing and all I want to do is listen to one classical music artist or I'm subscribing and all I want to do is read Fast Company, you don't get the full share of my subscription. So what does Apple have to do to really make this work? Well, first of all, you sort of described the cable model, right? I mean, I don't necessarily need ESPN, but I pay for it every month. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, and full disclosure, Fast Company is on the platform. And so I'm, you know, part of me is really rooting for this to work. I, I think that the Spotify model is right. I mean, it is going to be very hard for small publishers, and I, I would probably put us in that category. We are not, we're not teeny tiny, but we're certainly not a, a Wall Street Journal in terms of our um, circulation and our, our reach. I think you know, publishers feel like they have to be there, though. I mean, that's certainly the, the, the calculus that we made and felt that it was important to be there um, as a technology and innovation publication. We felt we needed to be on the platform. Um, I, I do think your point is well taken, though, John, that, that uh, for, for smaller publishers, for people who are um, 
you know, don't have the kind of brand visibility um, that uh, a Wall Street Journal or a Vogue has, it's going to be tough. But then I think that, you know, for a lot of those publications or those kinds of writers, that's what platforms like Medium are for. Mm. Uh, there are options for those folks. So, Kevin, how do you take advantage of commanding a powerful niche in this sort of situation then? Because it seems like in a lot of ways that um, niche resonance, that, that specialization, the, the power of it to command a premium gets taken away from you in this model. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that this uh, product has the same product, has the same problems that the internet does in general and all the other platforms that people are operating on. As a niche publisher, you're, you're sort of lumped in with everything else. Uh, in this case, you don't actually really have much of a direct relationship with the user, and so you lose your ability to do things to uh, to target them with offerings, maybe for things that are more profitable for you, like events and targeted newsletters and things like that. It's unclear how much publishers will be able to take advantage of people who actually come and read their, uh, their, their articles on this platform. And the truth is, for a lot of publishers, if you look at publishers today, particularly specialized publishers, it is things like events and email newsletters and premium offerings that are, that are making it possible for them to stay afloat at all. So Stephanie, I noticed on the Apple News Plus platform, I took a look over at The Athletic, which is that premium sort of sports-centric site that's trying to gather local sports experts from across the spectrum, uh, every region, every local area, every sport, and they charge a subscription. So for, it looks to me like you don't get all of The Athletic's content on News Plus. You get to look at some headlines, but then there's an upsell to subscribe for an additional fee. Do you think some more publications might head in that direction as they see how this plays out over the first few months? Is there room in the negotiation with Apple to say, yeah, we'll be on there completely free for six months, a year or so, but then after that, we might need to charge? Yeah, I think everyone will be watching The Athletic really closely, at least uh, the, the publishers and those in media, to see if that um, has legs. I mean, you know, Quartz is a great example of a publication that has been able to you know, offer a free newsletter, but then once it has readers that are hooked and readers that love the content, offer a premium product. So there, there's a really strong track record for this happening in publishing. And, you know, it's interesting as we look at other parts of the Apple announcement, a lot of people have said, well, it looks like Apple is just trying to get, you know, its customers, the people who love to give it more money or to get the people who <laughs> buy Apple products to, to give them even more. I mean, we're doing this in publishing all the time. I mean, you know, Kevin referenced events and newsletters. Um, at Fast Company, we have recognition programs where we try to get the companies that we write about to, you know, apply to, you know, win awards and, you know, potentially license logos. So, you know, this is a model that people in publishing have embraced in the past. It'll be interesting to see if the Apple platform is amenable or hospitable to that kind of um, additional, you know, sort of revenue gathering. No, Stephanie, I've got a, I've got a theory. Let me bounce it off you. At first, when I saw this announcement yesterday, I thought, bad product announcement. I mean, frankly, they had, they had rolled out iPads and iMacs earlier in the week, kind of in press releases. And then I thought, boy, if, if they're just putting out press releases about this other stuff, they, might, they must have something amazing to show at the services announcement. But then, you know, I saw Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston and Alfre Woodard and Jason Momoa, all these people, but very little actual footage from what they're creating. And I thought, what is this? It's a celebrity show. But then I slept on it. 
and I woke up and I thought, okay, maybe I was wrong to think of this as a product announcement. Maybe it was really a manifesto. Maybe Tim Cook was coming out there and saying, we've been living in this era of data and targeting and privacy invasion, and we're going to roll out a vision for something different. A credit card that doesn't track you and doesn't charge fees, content that doesn't rely on advertising and knowing every single thing you're clicking on and doing. We're going to cast the net wide, declare that we're doing this, and then hopefully Hollywood and others will come to us, details to come. You think that's what they were doing? Well, I think if it was a manifesto, it was a really subtle manifesto. Usually <laughs> manifestos are people screaming from the rooftops or at least being really explicit. Um, I, I think there is some truth to, to, to what you've said there, John. I think they are trying to differentiate themselves and present themselves in a really pro-consumer way. As is the case with a lot of these things, it's it's a wait and see story. I mean, there's a lot of um, you know nobility to creating a credit card that's supposed to help people manage their finances and debt better. But Apple's not the first to come up with this idea. I mean, there are others and other credit cards and other financial services products that are very specifically designed to help people control their spending. Um, it doesn't mean that Americans are any less in debt than we used to be, you know, five or six years ago. Um, so it remains to be seen whether the consumer really will use these products in the ways that they were intended. I think that, you know, ad-free content is, you know, it's, it's, it's a great idea. You know, Apple didn't invent this, and it'll be interesting to see if, you know, if, if consumers are willing to pay for it, especially, you know, sight unseen. Uh, it, it, there was a great lineup of talent there, but as you pointed out, I, I don't know what I'm buying yet. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I, what I was thinking as, you know, I've been thinking this overnight is that Apple has, has laid the foundation for a rebundling of the services that we that have been uh, disaggregated and, and we buy in components. So you might have a Netflix subscription for your family, you might have Spotify, you might have um, iTunes or, or cable subscriptions, HBO, that sort of thing. And what Apple is doing now in the areas of music, in video, in games, in books, in cloud storage services, in news actually is laying all of these building blocks they could potentially come to you and say, for $100 a month, you can have all your eat for your family of all these services. We're going to protect your privacy. And isn't that simpler than you having all these separate subscriptions that you have to manage? So I think that that's an interesting direction. I also think that yesterday was a manifesto of a different sort, hmm. which is that Apple's quarterly revenue has been declining. It declined in the fourth quarter from a year earlier. It's forecast to decline again in the current quarter. Uh, the thing that is growing is services. And so it's a manifesto to investors to say, we realize that the era of hyper growth of iPhone sales is not going to propel us to the valuation that we have as this company. But we believe firmly that a broad footprint in services will do the same thing. Once again, this is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas, Powerful People. We are talking about Apple's big services announcement this week. And speaking of a broad portfolio. Games is included. And joining us now from Cleveland is Rebecca Saltzman. She is the CEO and co-founder of Finji, the game development house behind a number of games, including Overland, which was featured during yesterday's uh, Apple Arcade unveil. Uh, Rebecca, thanks for being with us. Now, Talk to me about this arcade idea, because it, it has a lot of appeal, especially for me as a parent whose kids 
want to play a bunch of games, some of which have in-app purchase, and I'm not letting them do that because I'm afraid of what it'll do to my wallet and bank account. Um, what's the appeal here and what Apple's trying to build, and do you think it's going to move the needle? Um, so from our perspective, um, I'm a small independent developer out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we've been making independent games for a really long time. Um, and we've sort of always been in um, kind of outside of the mainstream in a lot of ways. Um, so it's been really nice to partner with Apple, who's sort of seen um, uh, a, different, a different vision outside of just the free-to-play experience that's been so prevalent on their storefront for so long. And I also have some kids, two little goblins in Michigan, um, mm -hmm. and we have to keep all of our things locked down as well, because who knows what they would actually um, have access to. Um, so yeah, I'm actually I'm super excited about um, the way that Apple has come to a lot of us who are making really creative games kind of outside of the normal mobile space and um, bringing those experiences to a much wider audience on the Apple Arcade subscription service. Well, Rebecca, what does this do to the hit? I mean, it seems to me like for the, the steady performer or maybe the undiscovered uh, talent out there, this has a lot of potential and appeal, but it seems like for both the publications and the studios that already have hits, the appeal of going with this model is limited because if somebody would be willing to pay five or ten bucks just for your game and then more to continue to play it, why would you be part of an arcade subscription? So uh, it seems like you're coming from this from just the mobile perspective. So the video game uh, market is much bigger than just mobile. These um, sort of subscription-based um, buy-ins are available on multiple consoles. You can get, you know, Xbox Game Pass. Um, so this model is actually not new to video games. Um, as a developer, our job is to find sort of the companies that we want to partner with that we have a shared vision, um, which is the case with a lot of the developers, I think, who have been approached by Apple and who have sort of jo uh, joined this particular model. Um, so yeah, like I don't, I don't see it sort of crashing anything. I think it's more of a way to bring more and more people. Like you know, the number of people who play video games in the world is huge, and they are currently sort of siloed on a lot of different platforms. And Apple has sort of taken the initiative to bring these more premium games, these sort of bigger games, to a your pocket, to a mobile market. Stephanie, a Apple is arguably more powerful in premium mobile games than in anything else that they do premium-wise, content-wise on its platform. Um, might we be paying less attention than we should to this arcade move? Uh, I, I certainly am. I'm glad Rebecca's on the show because gaming is absolutely not my forte. Um, but I, I do think the arcade move is going to be an interesting one to watch. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me about um, you know, Apple's mobile gaming um, play is that you know there is a really interesting diversity of content on there and as Rebecca pointed out there's probably even you know an opportunity for greater diversity as it partners with some of these smaller publishers and it's going to be you know for me I feel like what we've started to see in terms of the original content doesn't feel like it's going to be that far out of the mainstream and so you know, it would be great to see if perhaps the mobile gaming experience with its diversity, with its range of content, will help inform what happens on the original content side where, you know, right now, the early sense of what we've seen is, is, is pretty mainstream and, and pretty, you know, middle America, middle, middle of the road. 
I think I have, I have the same question as John does, which is to what extent blockbusters, real hits in, in video games are essential to drive this sort of subscription and, to, and known titles and to what extent those publishers are willing to participate in a bundling of their, uh, in a bundling of their offering, which by definition uh, limits the upside that they could have from, from having a great hit. And so I think people, it's like movies, it's like books, people want to play the hit games and it's unclear to me uh, that that the biggest publisher, game publishers will be willing to put their hottest titles into a bundle like this. Rebecca, what do you think? Uh, I guess only time will tell. Um, the service hasn't launched yet, and already um, I was super... I didn't know everyone who was actually involved with it until yesterday, and when I saw the, the logos on screen um, right away, uh, there were companies up there that I didn't expect to see up there and I was super excited to be among some of some of the best creators in the industry right now and um, that's really exciting for us. Rebecca, as, as a smaller shop that's been plugging away, doing some celebrated work, I wonder if you can talk more about what you see happening in free versus pay. Because one of the themes that I'm picking up from Apple, what it's doing right now, is this pushback against free and advertising-driven content, trying to at least get people used to the idea that great content costs money to produce, and so there ought to be some outlay up front. How, how critical do you think that is to the continued development of the kind of work that you do and then creative content in general? So as a developer, like um, a lot of people don't understand quite uh, how expensive video games are to make. Um, Behind every video game are a ton of engineers, and engineers cost money, artists cost money, music costs money. Like how many money. have you got? Give us an idea. Um, for me, my teams are very, very small. Um, Overland is being made by a team of eight, and I've been bootstrapping the development on this game for the last five years um, through contract work and previous revenue from past titles. Um, and for me, I'm very, very tiny, but some of the other teams that are involved in this, I mean, we're talking hundreds of people. Um, and two to three years of development cycles. Um, so oftentimes comparing these to like movie budgets is misguided because they're often much, much, much bigger um, and the development time is so long. Um, so yeah, like the, the marketing scope that sort of like Apple is providing us with Apple Arcade, like the notoriety, like for my small shop, um, it's awesome, but also at the same time, like my team has won several awards. My last launch, um, sort of, it won a BAFTA and sort of the Oscars of indie games. Um, one of our first mobile titles is in the Museum of Modern Art, in New York City. Like we have sort of a uh, record of putting out sort of hits that have kind of changed and pivoted, like the video game um, industry and the way you sort of think about games in the mobile space and otherwise. So. Yes, things have gone free, and yes, things are expensive, but like, in order for games to exist, people have to in some way pay for them. Um, they are just too expensive to be free. Yeah, and I totally agree. Games are never truly free. They're actually funded by things like advertising. Mm -hmm. And to John's point earlier, what Apple has done is it's very clearly said that it's focused on consumer revenue, on privacy, on these other things. And in a way, the biggest change is a shift away from advertising as the fundamental foundational business model for things like news and games and television even. And so uh, you're paying for them one way or the other. Apple has pivoted in pretty stark contrast to companies 
the other biggest tech companies, specifically Google and Facebook, has, has pivoted in really stark contrast to them to say we're focused on people paying for things. We're focused on consumer revenue and we're going to protect your privacy and not target you with ads and you should be willing to pay for that. This is Fort Knox. We were talking about Apple's big services announcement, and they cut across a number of different subjects. They talked about TV. Uh, they talked about a credit card. Uh, they talked about games, uh, more publishing, etc. I want to go back to the credit card, Stephanie, because uh, I heard that some publications out there that were writing about the event saw that the card itself was drawing more traffic than some of the content announcements, which is interesting. Um, I, I scratched my head thinking, does Apple just have so much money and so much time now that they can go do whatever they want? And what do we use? Oh, we use credit cards. Those need fixing. Um, what do you think uh, the impact of this announcement will be? It's kind of interesting adding some uh, intelligence to the screen as far as allowing you to see where you spent money track purchases, no late fees. Is this going to have a big impact on uh, the payments industry? I don't see this as having a, a massive impact on the, the payments industry. As we talked about a little bit before, a lot of the things that this card uh, says it will enable consumers to do, they're available through a number of different financial services um, platforms, whether it's, you know, the ability to, um, through a beautiful graphic interface, see what you're spending money. I mean, a lot of the credit card companies already do that. Sometimes you get that in your, your monthly statement. Um, this idea of um, allowing the users to be able to control a little bit more or see what their debt levels are, you know, again, very noble. It'll, it remains to be seen whether people will actually use these functions. It's a little bit like when, you know, Apple and Health. I, I think that you know, there's a good intention in putting these features out there. They're going to be beautifully designed. They're going to be easy to use. Those are things that Apple really excels at. But when it comes to fundamental human nature, you, you ultimately have to convince people to use them, to do what's good for them, to take the steps if it's a health app, to take, the, um, the, to take control of your financial health. I, I think that, you know, Apple is stepping into an area where there is a lot of work that has already been done. You know, that all said, I, you know, Kevin earlier talked about, you know, almost this Apple lifestyle that um, was was unveiled yesterday, and you know, financial services is part of the big American household lifestyle. And so it seems that um, if they were trying to, as part of this manifesto, also talk about all the places where Apple will be there to make your life easier, you know, financial services does certainly seem like an area that's, that's crying out for, um, for, for them to sort of you know, capture more of their users' mind share. And I think I might be more optimistic than you, Stephanie, about this credit card. I think that there is a difference when payments are, are deeply embedded in the device and the, and the tech platform that you use. This is still a pain point for a lot of people. You have to use a different app. It's not fully integrated. You get some sort of rebates, but they may not be quite as usable or shareable as you might like them to be. And I think if we look at a market like Asia, where we've seen the technology giants effectively disrupt the banks and the payment companies, the success of Alibaba and some other companies, I think that this is a potential foundation for Apple, moving beyond Apple Pay, to actually build out an ecosystem that we've seen succeed elsewhere. And, and part of that is actually just integrating it deeply 
into, into what we do on our devices every day. Rebecca, taking this payment conversation down into one specific industry, gaming, uh, what do you feel like Apple's impact or, or potential is in that space where there are a lot of transactions that can take place in and around a game? Do you have a preference as far as which types of services you use to collect payments and do transactions? And uh, what, what kind of an impact a, has Apple had there, and B, could they have? To be perfectly honest, um, from our side of things, it's often shielded. Um, we don't handle, like, across any of my storefronts, I really don't handle any of the payment processing. As a parent, I would like it to be as hard as possible for my children to buy things <laughs> when they get a hold of my phone. So if this makes it harder, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can definitely echo you there. Our, our kids do not know uh, any kind of login information or to pay for anything. They're always asking me. I'm almost always <laughs> saying no. Um, Kevin, when we look overall at what Apple could do with this services strategy, and granted, we've got WWDC coming up, their Worldwide Developer Conference in the summer where we tend to see big software operating system platform announcements. We've got the iPhone announcement that we usually get in the fall. There's a lot of news to come out here. How important is it that they either do or don't come out with some services bundle? Offer me a discount if I want Apple Music and TV Plus and News Plus and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, I think that from a consumer standpoint and a business standpoint for Apple over time, I think that's a really compelling proposition. I don't actually think that we're going to see that this year because I think that Apple has signaled that there will be a price on these various services. Mm. If the, a question you could ask, did Apple withhold the pricing uh, for for the television, uh, for Apple TV Plus? Do they withhold it because there is going to be some kind of bundle that they're not quite ready to announce? That would be super interesting. Um, I would bet against it. I think we're just going to get straight up a la carte pricing for all of these services. And the question of a, a super bundle from Apple is one that might play out over the years ahead, but probably not this year. They can at least give free two terabytes of uh, iCloud storage if you buy all the services. I don't know, Stephanie, what do you think is happening with this grand rebundling? We were supposed, a la carte was supposed to be the thing, but now we've got so many services, it seems like somebody's got to put a package together. Well, and I think you know, Kevin made the reference to what we're seeing in China and certainly beyond payments, the other big phenomenon coming out of the China tech scene is the, the super app, right? The, the, the one platform to rule them all. And I think that you know, if, if we are going to take a clue from China, I think there are going to be some, some big bundles coming up. Um, you know, but again, people like choice. And so there will be people who will continue to buy things a la carte, either because their favorite show is on Netflix or their favorite show is on Amazon and it's not available on an Apple platform. And so they're going to want to go to, to where the content they want is. We saw a lot of publishers are not on, on Apple News Plus. And so I think for the, the time being, there's going to be, it, it's going to be worse for consumers before it gets better. <laughs> Rebecca Saltzman, close us out here. What's your expectation on how successful Apple is going to be in growing share, mind share, market share, in the gaming space with this service that they just announced, based on what you've seen so far? Um, 
To be perfectly honest, my biggest hope is that those, this huge demographic of people who have been playing sort of smaller mobile games for so many years now, sort of steps into these more, like just bigger games and bigger experiences. Um, and if that's what comes out of this, um, sort of showing my art form to a wider audience of people, like uh, that's a success for me. <laughs> There's so much more to do out there than crush candy people. <laughs> Take advantage. <laughs> Maybe uh, Apple's arcade will be a way to do that. Guys, thanks so much for your insight. We're, of course, going to continue to watch this company and its services strategy unfold. Um, Kevin Delaney, uh, Stephanie Mehta, and Rebecca Saltzman covering all angles of this. I am John Fort from CNBC. This has been Fort Knox from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.